thanks. Um, hi, um, thanks for having me speak. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Lana. Um, I'm not originally a Luton person. I was born and raised in sunny Southend. Actually going to be there this week, which is going to be lovely. Um, and yeah, born there, raised there, grew up going to church um, from pretty much day one. Um, church was pretty much a second home for me. Um, I had an amazing family, amazing community there. And um, as I grew up, I um, got involved in like different things. And um, my youth pastor got me leading. And then I left Southend when I was about 19. And I, um, after a gap year, I studied theology at uni um, because I figured it'd be fun. I was wrong. Um, but, but because it was something I was interested in, it was something that was very central to my life, and I didn't know what I wanted to study, and I figured this would be, this would be a fun thing to do. And so I studied um, theology for three years at university. And, um, ooh, one second. Hey, there we go. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so, yeah, studied theology. But actually, looking back, I don't think I actually really studied much theology during uni. I probably shouldn't say that, and I probably now won't name what uni I went to. Um, but for me, um, most of the hard theology, the hard work of theology, came after I graduated from uni. Um, and that's because shortly after graduating from university, um, I realised that I was bisexual. I came out to myself and then to my friends and family. Um, and for me, around that time, I um, had to start asking a lot of um, big questions um, that felt like kind of life or death questions for me. Am I okay? Am I acceptable? Um, where do I fit in God's story? Where do I fit in the Bible? Am I in or am I out? The, um, my friend uh, Broderick Greer um, describes, has kind of coined this term that I've come to love and understand, which is doing theology as survival. I think through uni I was lucky enough to do theology as sport. Um, but actually post-uni, for me, theology became a matter of survival. It became a matter of life or death questions, wrestling. God, where are you in this? And where am I in your story? Where am I in your kingdom? My friend Broderick um, also uh, said this, these are the questions, those questions of where do I fit? Am I okay? Am I in or am I out? These are the questions of those of us who do theology as a matter of survival. The bare bone challenges we present before God and the church, daring them to look us square in the eyes and utter the truth. And so um, as I was um, sort of uh, uh, preparing for this talk, I got really excited because it's this kind of topic of in and out has become something that is really personally important to me and something that I love um, wrestling with and um, not just for myself, but for friends, for family, for people who these questions matter. Um, it's not just a, an endeavor of sport, but of survival. Um, and for many of us, we'll know this experience for ourselves or for others, or maybe we just know because I feel like um, more and more we're hearing this question of who's in and who's out and where are the lines um, about the church. It's gaining a bit of press. It's gaining a bit of traction. There's a lot of challenge at the moment around it. And so it's something that feels quite high on the agenda when we think about church, when we think about theology. Um, but this... Uh, challenge is not a rare challenge and it's and it's not a new issue for the church this is something the church has been wrestling with since day one since the start of the church and so um as we look at acts together as we have been um over the last um few weeks um 
what I love about it, what I love about the book of Acts is that you get to see the kind of the newborn church taking its first wobbly steps, trying to function and wrestling with these questions, saying, you know, how do we, how do we function as a church? How do we take what was into what is? And, and how do we answer these big questions? And how do we do that with real people living real lives? And so as we, as I'm today, what we're going to do is just look at three passages in Acts. Um, and I love it because it reminds me that we are not alone in wrestling with these questions. The church has been doing it for 2,000 years and we're still figuring it out and we're still um, trying to work out what that looks like to do as a church community. And so um, without further ado, we're going to get into it. So we're going to look at three passages from Acts. Um, So if you have a Bible on your phone or a physical one, turn to it. If not, um, a lot of the passages are going to be up on the screen anyway. But turn with me to Acts chapter 8. That's where we're going to kick off. So in Acts chapter 8, a messenger from God um, appears to St. Philip in verse 26 is where it kicks off. And um, the messenger from God tells Philip to go um, onto a road into the desert. And as St. Philip is walking this road in the desert, he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch who would have been a kind of a sexually other, um, a devout person from Africa. Most likely he would have been a um, Gentile convert to Judaism. And so um, he's walking along the road um, and he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch reading um, a passage of scripture. Um, But back then, um, they didn't really read in their heads. That wasn't a thing you read out loud. That was the tradition of reading. And so the chances are Philip's walking along and he hears this eunuch reading a passage from Isaiah. And so, um, like every good Bible teacher, St. Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch is like, well, how can I if nobody will guide me? And so um, together, Philip and the eunuch um, sit and talk about this passage. And the the writer of Acts gives us a bit of an insight into what passage they're reading, which is super interesting. And so the eunuch was reading this passage, and it's a passage from Isaiah. And it says, he was led like a sheep, is it on here? Yeah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now, for those of us reading that today, I think it feels fairly obvious that Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus. This is a passage that feels so... um, close to the to the story of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we read this and we go, well, it's, you know, it's obvious who, who he's talking about. But the eunuch, who was a Gentile Jew, would not have known um, who Jesus was. He wouldn't have known of the person of Jesus. And so as he's reading this passage, he's not reading Jesus into this prophecy. And so when he turns around and says... Um, about whom may I ask you, in verse 34 of Acts chapter 8, he said, about whom may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? For me, it feels fairly obvious that the eunuch is reading himself into this passage. How can he not? He's reading into this his own experience of castration, of sexual otherness, of marginalization in society. And he says, about whom may I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? The eunuch is asking, you know, that life and death question of where he fits in God's economy. 
He is doing theology as survival. Is this about me? Am I the one being led like a sheep to the sword? Am I the one being denied justice? Am I, uh, what does the Lord say to me, to who I am? Where can I find myself in this story? We also need to remember, um, as we're reading this, um, that um, Philip and the eunuch, as they're reading this passage, um, so they, they wouldn't have had verse numbers like we do, or, or chapter numbers, or chapter headings. That was all put in much, much later. And so the, the text they were reading would have just been one kind of continuous bit of text or scroll. Um, and so what I find very interesting is that um, it means that it's very likely that St. Philip and the eunuch also came across a very interesting passage just a few verses later in chapter 56 um, of Isaiah. I'm going to get it up. The, um, the original passage was in chapter um, 53. And just in chapter 56, a few verses later, this is what we read. Let no foreigners who have bound themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and holds fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this about? himself or someone else. And at this point, I'd like to imagine that Philip turns around and says, you. He says this about you. In that moment, as Philip is sat side by side or face to face with um, this eunuch asking the life and death question of, am I okay? Am I in or am I out? Philip has... Um, a moment, just a moment, a kind of a, a, a single moment to say something in response. And actually what Philip does is he takes the God that he knows and the God that he has read in scripture through the prophet of Isaiah. And so um, back in um, Acts chapter 8, verse 35, we hear Philip's response. And he says, then Philip, uh, it says, then Philip began to speak. And starting with this scripture, starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Uh, um, uh, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? In that moment, having read the scriptures together, Philip baptized the eunuch. He said, you're in. He took the God that he knew through the scripture and he couldn't deny what God was saying. And he said, you're in. So we then move forward um, two chapters to Acts chapter 10. Um, and in this story, we hear um, of a, jo a Jewish Roman centurion um, named Cornelius. And Cornelius had a dream from God that asked him to summon Peter, the apostle. Um, and around the same time as Cornelius got a dream summoning Peter, Peter got a dream from God. You can see where this is going. Um, and 
it was a bit of a pretty sort of trippy dream. Um, most dreams are, but this one was particularly weird. Um, so this is Peter's dream, and you can read it in um, Acts chapter 10. It says, he saw... Oop, this is going to topple, isn't it? Nope. There we go. Uh, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. That is the sort of dream I imagine if you had, you would go straight into school or work and tell all your friends about. Like, that is a pretty weird dream. Um, I, weird fact about me, I don't dream. I've had probably five dreams in my life that so I would not have had that dream. But, you know, if I did have that dream, I would definitely be telling people about it. Um, but I don't think that on first reading, we perhaps understand just how weird that dream is for Peter. It's a weird dream anyway. But when you understand, obviously, the context of it, it's a lot, lot weirder. Um, everything instilled into Jewish people was about keeping pure and clean according to the um, Mosaic laws. And one of the most basic cultural laws within Jewish tradition is about eating clean um, and pure food as opposed to unclean food. And the food on that sheet that came down would have been unclean food. And it's not just a case of like, you know, I'm vegan, I try and not eat certain foods. If I do, the world isn't going to end, you know? It's not a case of that. This is a case of you would be made unright with God. You would not be in good relationship with God if you ate those foods. You would be unclean socially. You would not be, if you touch someone else when you're unclean because you ate unclean food, that person is now unclean. This, this, these values, these, these worldviews, these um, laws around what you eat were life and death. This was like, this determined whether you were in or whether you were out. And so Peter has this sheet come down of something that he is told instinctually from day one, you do not touch, you do not eat. And God says, eat it. Like, that's weird. That's trippy. And it clearly... God knew that because the dream happened three times, probably to just instill the message. Like, no, this isn't just you, Peter. This is me. Um, and so the dream ends. And I imagine Peter being like, what, you know, what the heck is that? What does that mean? And at the exact point the dream ends, we are told that the three people Cornelius has sent to go and get Peter arrived. This feels a little bit like a Guy Ritchie movie to me. Like, I can imagine it all happening in clockwork. Um, and so uh, the, the guys turn up at Peter's house and he's a little bit worried, but then God's like, don't worry, I sent them, they're not going to hurt you, go with them. So Peter goes to Cornelius's house um, and uh, this is what the passage says as we follow on in Acts chapter 10. It says, Peter went inside, I need like five hands I think, there we go, uh, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are all well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles, which Cornelius was, or visit them. 
But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. May I ask why you sent me? So Cornelius at this point explains his weird dream that he had of God asking him to go and summon a guy called Peter. um, And is like, so that's all I've got. So what are you going to say in response to that? And so then Peter began to speak. Um, and we follow this on in the next passage. Do we have it? Yeah. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And he goes on. And then we um, get in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. And I love that this passage comes just two chapters after the eunuch, um, where Philip had sat with the eunuch and had read this thing and then was faced with the question and said, well, I can't do anything but what God has said in this, in this passage. And then two chapters later, we see Peter going to the house of a Gentile and saying, well, actually, everything in me says I shouldn't be here, says I shouldn't be engaged in this, says I shouldn't be eating certain foods. And yet God has told me something different, and I'm going to go with that. And again, at the end of this passage, it kind of um, climaxes in this baptism, a sign, an outward sign of an inward thing of Peter saying, you know what, you're in. You're in. Peter threw away a lifetime of cultural law, societal law, bias, worldview, ingrained in him as we all have because he heard the voice of God. He listened and obeyed. The Spirit of God spoke to Peter. It redrew the line of who was in and who was out of what was acceptable. And Peter said, okay, okay. Lastly, um, we're going to skip five more chapters um, to Acts chapter 15. This is our last passage we're going to read together. And um, this passage um, feels, in terms of understanding um, the early church in all of this, this passage feels to me the most familiar because it's essentially about a church meeting. <laughs> and growing up in Baptist churches, um, I'm all about the church meetings. Um, and so we, uh, we, we, at the beginning of the story, there's, there's essentially a church meeting that's going on in Judea. And, and they're, they're earnestly trying to wrestle with how that there's, there's Gentiles that are becoming um, Christians. Um, and they're saying, this is great. They love it. Um, 
but, but what does that mean? And what is expected of them? And what, what do they have to do to be in and be out? Um, and so they're earnestly kind of wrestling with some of these questions. And um, a load of the people in Judea were saying, well, they need to be circumcised. That's, you know, that's rule one of Moses. I mean, it's not, but you know what I mean? It's an important rule in Mosaic law. You need to be circumcised. We all are, they all need to be. Um, but Paul and Barnabas um, disagree. Guys, you can thank Paul and Barnabas for that. Um, they said, no, absolutely not. And so, um, and so uh, the, the people in Judea, people in Judea sent Paul and Barnabas to um, Jerusalem to essentially talk with some of the top dogs, um, the apostles and the spiritual leaders there to basically get a bit of advice. And so um, Paul and Barnabas go to, um, go to Jerusalem. Um, and in, even there, there are still people saying the same thing. No, they need to be circumcised. And so we pick up in um, Acts chapter 15, verse 7, and Peter got up and addressed them. He says, Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, uh, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving, them the Holy, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole crowd um, was silent. They um, listened to Barnabas and Paul um, tell all about um, the, the miracles and amazing things that God had been doing through them among non-Jewish people. Um, and so in response, they write a letter to the Gentiles explaining that they don't need to be circumcised off the back of this, but that there are still practices they do need to keep. There were still things that were important, and um, they were still re- figuring out what it looked like to be in and out, but they said at that point, you know what, you're in. Um, and I love this passage in particular, as I said, because for me, it, um, it feels the most relatable, it feels the most human in some ways. Um, it's a group of people, normal people, figuring this out, having meetings, debating, trying to understand the love of God and what that means for um, his people, um, and understanding the fight for survival these Gentiles were in, um, and, 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 and wrestling with the, the big questions that they were asking. Um, and one of the passages that I love the most <laughs> Um, in this passage, there is a particular verse, um, but I'll read the letter. So um, in response, this is the letter that Paul wrote to um, the Gentiles, which is wonderful. I love it. Um, but there's also a line in it that cracks me up. Um, okay, the council's letter to Gentile believers. So um, this is, if you're reading, is Acts 15, chapter um, 23. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. I'm going to go with that. Greetings. Nice start. We have heard that some went out from us without authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. And this is the line I love. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. <laughs> or in some, of our, uh, uh, some other versions, it says, the Holy Spirit and we have agreed. <laughs> and I just think that's weird. Like, yeah, we're in agreement. Like, we matter in that. But anyways, um, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And I sign off. But it's that, it's that, um, that key phrase that gets me every time. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond. The Holy Spirit and we have agreed not to place, um, as some of the versions read, the Holy Spirit um, and we have agreed not to place any additional burdens on you. We do not want to add to your burdens. We do not want to add to the weight that is probably already crippling you or the marginalization you are already facing or the shame that you're already experiencing or the fear that you are already living in. We do not want to add to the burden you're in. Through these... um, three passages, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 15, we see people who are engaging in theology as a matter of survival. Both those who are asking those questions for themselves and the church saying, how do we do this for others? How do we answer the and wrestle with the theology of this for those people? They are asking God and the church the bold-faced questions of where am I in your story? Where do I fit? Am I okay? Am I acceptable? Am I in or am I out? And we see the church in response grappling with trying to answer that. And we've seen that for the last 2,000 years. But all along, God is speaking. Through scripture, as with the eunuch. Through his spirit, as with um, Peter. And through our minds and through our hearts, as with the council in Jerusalem, God is speaking. And so for us as the church, we have a responsibility to continue in the shoes of our ancestors um, before us to read the scriptures and keep wrestling with the scriptures, to choose God's voice over our own when we hear it, and to wrestle and debate this according to the God that we know and according to the humanity in each other. I recognize now that I probably used to do theology as sport, um, but I now do theology as survival for myself and for friends and for family and for people that I don't know, but I know of. Um, Because if people can do theology that oppresses, that murders, that brutalizes women, black people, trans people, queer people, people with disabilities, people with um, mental ill health, bisexual people, then theology can be used to liberate us and renew us and dignify us. And as a church, we have a a chance to join with our ancestors and wrestle for the liberation for ourselves, each and every one of us, and for our brothers and sisters across the world. I am, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to give us um, maybe just a minute to kind of sit in, in relative silence um, just to process, maybe allow God to speak to us a little bit. 
Um, and then after that, we're going to get into little groups and we're going to ask um, the following three questions um, that we typically do as a response to this. So um, I'm going to pray. We'll have a minute silence and then I'll invite us to, um, to maybe get into some small groups. Father, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you um, for your love, for your grace. That goes beyond any boundary we could know, any mistake that we think is too big. Thank you, God, that, um, that you are the redeemer, that you dignify us, that you liberate us and you renew us. Thank you that we can know you, that we can love you and be in relationship with you. And God, I just pray that, um, yeah, that you would speak to us through this individually, but also as a church. Show us how, um, how we fit in your story. And show us how we can do better for our friends and family across the world. Spirit of God, would you just speak to us? Um, if you would like to, um, maybe get into groups, small groups, threes or fours, something like that. Um, and we're going to ask three questions um, in response. Um, where do you find joy or consolation in these passages and in what we've heard? Um, what is difficult? Or maybe where do you find desolation or like challenge in this? And then last one is what might God be inviting you or us as a church to? Um, so feel free to answer all or any or none of those um, yeah, and then we'll probably have about 10 minutes-ish to do that.